morning comes from Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. Nope, sorry, 31 through 46. Don't know where that came from. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate peoples one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when do we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and be seated. God, as we come to your word, let us come with humble hearts, ready to receive your truth. Let us come with eager hands, ready to, to, to do the work that you've called us to. Let us go with feet prepared, ready to run, to go, to serve. God, we want to meet Jesus here this morning, so we pray that your spirit would come and make him clear to us. And God, may the words of my lips and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, so <clears throat> we're, we're going through this series on biblical justice, and like I said last week, uh, what we have been doing is sort of creating first a biblical theology of justice. And so we started with justice in in Moses, in the law, and then we move to justice in the prophets because we want to see this theme of justice as it emerges throughout Scripture. As, as we see God calling things to become the way that they were meant to be, as we see creation in, its, in, 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 in Genesis 1 and 2 uh, as relationships, as the earth was meant to be, and then we see that Genesis 3 brokenness that permeates every aspect of human uh, interaction, human life. 
right? Genesis 1 and 2, what we see is that God creates all things, but at the center of his creation is man and woman, is humanity. He created it for his glory, but ultimately for their flourishing. And so if humanity is the center of creation, as it were, if they're the crowning jewel of God's work, when humanity falls, when Adam and Eve sin, when they turn to their own devices, there is naturally a ripple effect through all of the cosmos. It's like throwing a boulder in a pond. There is not an unaffected aspect of all of creation. Sin, in its scope, is all-encompassing. You may be prone to think about it in different ways. You may be prone to think about it exclusively in an individual sense. I have sinned. I need restoration. But we have to remember as well that systems are made up of groups of individuals. Therefore, sin affects systems. Sin affects creation. Sin affects every facet of of life. This is step one to understanding just how good the news of the gospel is. And for years, I'm going to confess this for myself and not worry about talking about, I've been talking about evangelicalism a lot. I'm not going to talk about evangelicalism. I'm going to talk about myself and say that for years I was guilty of proclaiming a gospel that was too small to deal with the totality of the, the destruction of sin. I preached and communicated and believed a gospel that was good for you and for me and good for one-on-one -on -one conversations and was able to keep you out of hell, but not a gospel like Jesus preached, not an all-things-new gospel, not a reconcile all things to himself, which we'll actually talk about next week when we go into the Gospels and or justice in the church. When asked how the gospel that I preached would apply to injustices like the Holocaust or like slavery, I couldn't do it. The summation of my answer is, well, enough people need to get saved to tip the balance. Why? Because I didn't have a gospel that was big enough. My gospel was of personal salvation, not what the gospels say Jesus came preaching, which was the gospel of the kingdom. Friends, we must preach the gospel of the kingdom. We must believe a gospel of the kingdom. And that gospel of the kingdom is that Jesus is king and that he's come to make all things new. Broken systems, broken people. Man, I really wrestled over this. Set this out, plan this out. This week was the Gospels in, or Justice in Jesus. Um, and so for several weeks, all the way up until even Wednesday, the question was, what am I going to preach from? Like, I don't know if you have noticed this about me yet, but I don't like to bounce around too, too much. Like, I like to center myself in one text, and if we bounce around, it's all to come back to understanding that text. 
right? I don't like to bounce around. But as I looked at the stories of the gospel of the life of Jesus, like trying to pick one instance where Jesus talks about and encapsulates his teaching on justice is like looking at the entire catalog of whatever your favorite band is. It's like looking at, think about your favorite band and then say, if you had to pick one song that explained to people that band, what would it be, right? You'd be like, I, I can't do that, right? Like there are bands that aren't even my favorite that I just started listening to this year. I can't tell you which Anderson Pack song is the best, right? Like I can't do it. Likewise, I came to the life of Jesus and it is abundantly clear to me now how totally and how all-encompassingly the kingdom shapes his teaching. And so I'm going to do something that I don't usually do. I'm going to serve it, right? And so you guys are like, goodness, he usually does one text, and it's like 55 minutes, right? Uh, now he's going to survey the life of Jesus and pull out stories. Yeah, get, get like a blanket. Um, they have like... They have popcorn with truffle oil on it, right? Like, no. Um, we're going to survey the life of Jesus. And I want to call out specific instances. And just highlight what Jesus, like, is that, is that good, fan? Can we, can we do that? Like, all right, great. Thank you. <laughs> so the first such instance, right? So if you know Jesus' life, you know Jesus' story, you know that, uh, in, in the time of Caesar Augustus, there was a decree that came in the land that all people should go back to the place of their birth or of their family's ancestry. And so Jesus, in utero, with Mary and Joseph, go to Bethlehem. And Jesus is born there to a couple that at least when Mary became pregnant, was not married, right? And so Jesus is born already in scandal. But if you know the story, Mary and Joseph go to this town and they seek lodging, but they don't have either the financial or the uh, social capital to even be granted lodging. And so there's no room for them in the end. That's not, that's not just like no vacancy. Right, because if you're an important person, even in that day, they make room for you. If it was King Herod, and he walked in and said, I need room, even if there was no room, there's room, right? There are certain people who come to your house, and it's like, yeah, I'll make room, right? That's why we have three kids that are, that they're stackable. We'll put them over here, and you'll find a, a space there you make room but for other people there's no room to be made so mary and joseph get pushed into the stable right it's not like what we think of it's not the nativity scene they're in the back of a cave basically right and 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 there jesus is born there's no regalia there's no no anything except that uh the angels speak to pretty much the lowest profession of people that you have shepherds like shepherds and fishermen, sort of, bat and, and you sort of see the theme, 
These are the people Jesus hung out with, right? Shepherds and fishermen are kind of the lowest on the totem pole, and yet they're the ones to greet Jesus. Now, these wise men come, and you know that story, and they talk to Herod, and it's important to understand this, that they go to Herod, they're like, we saw the star, where's the one that the star speaks of? He's supposed to be born here. Herod is biblically literate enough to realize that this is the promised one, most likely, and that his reign, his reign is in jeopardy. And so he he makes this decree to kill, right? And so Jesus, uh, under the care, uh, baby Jesus, under the care of Joseph and Mary, he flees for his life. They flee for their lives, for the life of their child to Egypt. Then after some time, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus move back into the land, and they don't move to Bethlehem. Where do they move? Nazareth, right? And Jesus grows up in Nazareth, and Joseph has a very specific trade in Nazareth. He's a carpenter. He's not, he's not a ruler. He's not a judge. He's not a lawyer. He's not uh, a Pharisee. He's not in the Sanhedrin. He's not anyone of title. He is what would be the equivalent of a blue-collar worker in Nazareth, which is a town so so like remote and so poorly thought of that when when uh, Philip tells Nathaniel that he's found the Messiah, he's from Nazareth. Nathaniel's like Nazareth. Literally, he says, "What good can come from Nazareth?" Right? It's like it's like the University of Miami. Like, what good can come? No, no offense if you went to the University of Miami. I'm just messing, um, right? But what good can come from Nazareth? People treat Nazareth the way that we treat rural towns in America. And that's where Jesus is from. That's where he grew up. There's no culture there. Nothing redeemable there. Those people. That's where Jesus is from. So then all of a sudden, before he even speaks a word... Jesus embodies everything about the culture that was discardable, dismissible, reprehensible. He was was a bastard child, right? Like, that's in vogue now. How does the bastard orphan son, right? Like, (coughs) it's in vogue, right? He was born out of wedlock. He was a refugee. He was poor from a rural town, son of a blue-collar worker, with not much education or learning about them. And then when you go into his life, he is homeless. He's unmarried. Despised. Rejected by men. And all of a sudden, the very life of Jesus embodies all of the things that give you zero power, that give you zero privilege, that give you zero anything in a culture and yet at the same time love the irony of the gospel he is the king of kings so this is jesus life and then all of a sudden we get these stories and jesus starts infusing these things in these stories we come to luke chapter 4 he's come back home to nazareth he's on his grown man now he's in the temple and as was his custom he read scripture in the temple 
And the scripture that he read, this is in Luke chapter 4, comes from Isaiah 58, and we've, or sorry, comes from Isaiah, and in Luke chapter 4, this is what we see Jesus say. He comes into the, he comes into the temple, he unlocks, unrolls the scroll, he, he goes to Isaiah, and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor the family. That's the year of Jubilee. So go to Leviticus and read the laws about the year of Jubilee. It was an incredible time. I don't even know if it could work here, right? If you were in debt after the, and the year of Jubilee, your debts were canceled. If you were in servitude, if you were enslaved on the year of Jubilee, your slavery was ended. If you had gotten yourself in such a financial bind that you had to sell property and land to get out of it, on the year of Jubilee, you got your home back. It was a year of economic leveling as well as a year when God said, you better be on your righteousness because this is the year of my favor. So there was personal righteousness, there was economic leveling, there was social justice in the year of Jubilee. And Jesus reads the prophet Isaiah saying, the spirit of the Lord is on me. And then Jesus just, he says, look, and he wrote up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down. And in the eyes of all uh, who were fixed on him, he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, a lot of times we stop there. And we say this, and rightly so, if, if we were going to talk about this in points, this would be point number one, that Jesus makes it clear right here in his first public act in the Gospel of Luke that justice is at the center of his mission. Justice is at the center of Jesus' mission. That means when Jesus says, I came to seek and save the lost, that that word save has to be bigger than you think it is. It's no less than you think it is. It's no less than saving them from themselves and from their rebellion against God, but it is more than that. It is bigger than that. I've come to save them from the power, the penalty, and the presence of sin and the curse itself. I've come to make all things new. And so we get that. We understand that. Number one, justice was at the center of Jesus' mission, but then he keeps going. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And then they said, isn't this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. Now, if you already, if you don't understand what Jesus is saying there, now we have the gospel justice context for it. Why is it remarkable that he is coming to proclaim good news to the poor? Because he's the son of a carpenter. He's poor. Jesus was poor. And so he's saying, I'm saying I'm proclaiming generosity and abundance, the, the year of the Lord's favor as a poor man. And he, that's why he says, no doubt you will say, physician, heal yourself. And don't we love that? Don't we have a plague, an epidemic of that? Right? There's something unique about every prosperity gospel preacher that you see is that even though they preach to poor people, they all seem to be doing just fine. And poor people go because they see the bling and they think that could be me. And then they buy into the lies and the, the, the 
censored, right? That, that they spit. And they get suckered. And you see it, right? Sow some seed. Finally, that seed just went into another bend. Why do you think, why do you think Paul comes so hard against? In, Paul, in Paul's day, there were prosperity gospel. There were preachers who, got, who, who used godliness as a means of gains. And Paul, Paul kills them in Timothy. Let them be accursed. He doesn't say that about all of the, the, the uh, he doesn't say that about all the gluttony and the sexual immorality of the people in Corinthians. He doesn't say let them be accursed. But somebody comes preaching a prosperity gospel, godliness is a means of gains, and all of a sudden that's what he's saying? Like consider that. Why? Because Jesus was poor. Undoubtedly they'll say, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard, you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown now. And, his, uh, and he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Now listen to this. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard this, they were full of wrath. Why? Because the Jewish understanding at the time, the Jewish Hebrew cultural understanding that they were hearing of the gospel and the Messiah was for them. And then Jesus says, but if you actually read the scriptures you would realize that God always had an international desire. He had a global understanding of his goodness, of his lordship, of his kingness, of what he was going to do. And so he gives two examples of Elijah and Elisha going to people outside of the Hebrew nation in order to, to bring justice to them, to bring healing to them. And what they realize Jesus is saying is that at the heart of God's mission has always been the stranger, the outsider, the foreigner. Israel was always meant to be a community that grew both through birth but through welcoming people in in the covenant. It's why they had laws about gleaning and about how they treated the stranger in the land. It's because God understood that his covenant people were not of a specific ethnicity, of a specific nation. It was always meant to be all nations that Abraham was going to be a blessing to. But over the course of years and years and years of, of exile and of oppression and of all of these things that they should know better, still there became this strong national strain within Nazareth at least. And I think it's safe to say the whole culture and context. And when Jesus blows that out of the water, then they get mad. One sentence away. One sentence away. Or they spoke of the, marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. The grace. Wow. How is this man so eloquent and gracious? And, and then they were mad. They were filled with wrath. They rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. 
That wasn't like a, as you wish, right? Like that was a, that was a kill him type moment. So then we move forward to Luke 18. So Jesus was at the, justice was at the center of Jesus' mission. The stranger was at the heart of Jesus' construction of justice. Then we come to Luke 18, and it's such a fashion. This is one that's in all of them, guys. You know the story. Luke 18, verse 18. A ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Really, Jesus? Anyway, that's how I'm like, come on, man. Like, you know what I'm asking. But you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your mother and father. And he said, the rich young ruler, that is, the ruler said, I have all of these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard them, heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he, being the rich ruler, became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he'd become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? Who could possibly be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And in this story, it's interesting. We come to another movement, moment in Jesus' life, and I'm trying to do this overarching thing, and I, I may stop and say, we'll finish this next week. I don't know. Right, um, But here we go. Jesus now has been working, doing his ministry. He's been teaching. He's been healing. He's been healing. He's been doing the gospel ministry that he was called to. And this man comes to Jesus, and it's important to understand things about this man. Sometimes he's called the ruler. Sometimes he's called the rich man. Sometimes he's called the rich young ruler. When you sort of do a composite of all of the accounts of this, you can come to the conclusion that this person first was very rich. He was affluent. It's kind of central, right? It's easier for a camel and needle than a rich man to get it right. He was rich. But also, you see in Matthew and in, yeah, in Matthew, that he calls Jesus rabbi. Now, you've got to understand in Jewish culture that you didn't just give somebody that respect who was younger than you. Like, it was a generational culture. You wouldn't, you wouldn't give that sort of honor to somebody. So the, 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 the implication that can be made by him just calling Jesus rabbi, teacher, and by him just saying, I need to sit under you and under your instruction, I want to hear from you, rabbi, is that this man is at least younger than Jesus, which means at this time he was at least younger than somewhere between 30 and 35. He was young. He was rich. He was young. And he's described as a ruler. And on top of that, he's a man. And so what the Bible lays out, if we can speak anachronistically, are the privileges and the power that this person has. And to some extent, you can intuit why. 
right? And one thing that we see, obviously, is that he's rich. Like he has the financial means to do whatever it is that he pleases, apparently. He's extremely rich. He's very rich. He's, he's, he's rich in ways that we don't think about rich. But on top of that, he's young, which means that in all likelihood, he has not become rich because his rich father had died. Now, I understand, like, you could say that's conjecture. It is to a little bit, but I think that it's, I think it's fair. I think it's fair. If he didn't become rich because he inherited it from his father, that means that he became rich based on the work that he had done, which means that he's also successful. Right? This isn't family money. This is money that he earned. This is my hard-earned money. I, I busted my tail for this money. He made it. He earned it. And he did it without really any... It's, it's pretty clear he did it without breaking any of the overt, obvious laws of God. Right? He didn't swindle. He didn't lie. He didn't take a bribe. He didn't, like, cheat his way to the top. He earned this money. He's young. He's got his life ahead of him. He's a ruler. He has power. He has power. This man has privilege, power, and title. And then on top of that, in the culture, he was a man. Which meant he had complete control of his money. If it was a daughter whose, whose father died and they were the only and she inherited, she still wouldn't have control of that property or money. And so Jesus comes to him. Or no, sorry, he comes to Jesus. He says, what do I have to do? And Jesus lists off the law and he says, I've done it. Now think about this. In your life, if you can say, well... I haven't committed adultery, I haven't murdered, I haven't stolen anything, I've never lied, I've always honored my father and mother. And dude's like, yeah, all of that I've done since I was young. This man is more pious than you are. This man is much more righteous than you are. He's certainly more righteous than I am. Always honored his mother and father? Always? And since he was young, always? Oh, never lied, even once? Right? Never, always, like, do, do you hear, like, do you hear how amazing the claim he's making is? I always honored my father and mother from my youth. And Jesus comes to him, and essentially what he says is that piety is not enough. Piety without generosity will not get you into the kingdom. And we love to make our caveats about this one because this one spins. We love to say that the thing that he wasn't willing to give God was the problem that kept him from heaven. You heard that one? So maybe this doesn't apply to your money, rich people. Maybe the thing that you're not willing to give God is your, your love of television. Maybe the thing you're not willing to give God is your time. That's why you don't go to church every Sunday. Go to communion, right? Like we love to find things that are easy to give to God that we can say, 
this is how I apply this, is the thing that I'm unwilling to give up for God is the thing that is keeping me from God. And great, that's, that's a beautiful principle to live by. And it's probably true because anything you're not willing to give to God is something that you love more than God. And that is, God hates that. God does not like that. But let us not transfer away the weight of what Jesus is actually saying. Because he doesn't go on to say, it's so much harder for a person who has things they love more than God to get into heaven than it is for a camel to get to eye. He calls, he says, rich people. The application here is, if you are pious and you are not generous, then you've missed the gospel. Generosity is a, is a key characteristic of God's promises, of God's justice, and of God's gospel. So the rich man walks away sad, and I pray that we, family, will not walk away sad for our lack of generosity. Sell all you have and give it to the poor. And then what does he say? He says it's easier, it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than a rich man. And what is he really saying? He's saying that power and privilege and possessions are hindrances to believing and obeying the gospel because they establish themselves as enough when they are not. Because they make it harder to do justice. Because justice always costs the person who's doing it. Always. And Jesus will not let it sit. In the life of this rich ruler, we're going to do a part two, but I'm going to do one more this week. Because this story is important in light of this, because it involves another rich man. It's, it's actually happened in Luke's gospel. It, the account of it comes first, but I think this order will make sense. Uh, it's in Luke chapter 16, and in verses 19 through 31, we see that there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. He lived the life. Purple clothes? Yeah, purple linen? I'm just saying. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all of this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said then, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. 
let them hear. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if, you, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And so here are just a couple of things that we need to see. And then we'll move. God judges harshly injustice. God judges harshly a lack of generosity and compassion. Right, because of the text that I read in the beginning that we're going to study more later. We've said it every week and it bears repeating every week. God identifies with the poor. He identifies with the oppressed. He identifies with the marginalized. He is father of the fatherless. He is his husband to the widow. He says when you don't feed and you don't give drink and when you don't bring in and clothe those who are broken and hurting, you are, you are doing that to me. Even as you do to the least of these, you do to me. Which means that regardless of how good your theology is and how much you think you know about God and how infralapsarian, blah, 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 whatever you want to argue about you are, if you don't know intimately and are not acquainted with the poor in their sufferings and are not generous to them in their sufferings, if you do not know intimately and you're not acquainted with those who are enslaved, those who are oppressed in their suffering, those who are broken and hurting and imprisoned in their suffering, then you have not yet experienced the fullness of God. That's what Jesus says. And so this rich man now, he's in, he, is, he is experiencing judgment. And in this moment, there is this dramatic irony in Jesus' story that all he wants is some cold water. Even just the, right, just like Lazarus, all he wanted was the scraps that fell off the table. All the rich man wants is a, the drop of cold water off of Lazarus' finger, but there's none for him. Jesus is setting the stakes high, family. High, high, high. But if that's all you get out of this, you, you miss what I think for us who have grown up, or maybe if you did, if you grew up in the church in America, what you need to hear again and again and again, because I get into these arguments, and I don't know why I get into these arguments or why I let myself, right, like people, people social media brave, and I, I still, like I, I'm pulling back, I'm able to do it, but my heart like really just wants to gun at people, you know, da -da 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 -da. it's so simple, but it's not, <laughs> right, like. But over and over again, I hear like, how, show me, or like, I can't conceive of, justice isn't a part of the ultimate idea of what the gospel is. It's over here, that here's the gospel, seek and save the lost, save sinners from hell, here's justice over here. It's kind of a thing that some people do, but if you get too far into justice, you'll have a mission drift, and you'll forget all about that, and somehow you'll lose the gospel if you care too much about justice. Right, and you have these conversations about, hopefully after four weeks of this, like even that idea that you'll lose the gospel if you focus too much on justice, just makes, it's just, it's crazy. But here's the thing. Is if somebody says, show me gospel in the scriptures, then what Jesus is saying is you ain't read the scriptures. I love this because because uh, the rich man has like this like Charles Dickens thought, right? If all my Ebenezer brothers can just hear from somebody from the dead, 
right? Can you visit them a few times at night? Then they'll change their mind, right? That's what he's asking for. And what Dickens doesn't understand that God, Jesus, Abraham, all of the above in this story understand is that if you didn't listen to Moses and the prophets, you're not going to listen to somebody from the dead. If you didn't listen to the prophets before you, you're not going to listen to Jesus. You're certainly not going to listen to me. And you're certainly not going to listen to resurrect. You, you'll, you'll stay like Ebenezer Scrooge. There's, there's uh, what, more of suffer than spirit of you? I forget what it is. It's a great line, and I forgot it. Um, oh, yeah, anyway. There's more of gas than ghosts. All right, you guys know what I'm talking about. It's a good line, and I lost it. Should have written it down. There's more gravy than grave. That's it. And that's so much better than gas and goats. I think people would have been like, yeah, we're going to get another book. Um, gravy and grave, right? So, but anyway, the point is that Jesus, in telling this story, is saying to the Pharisees who are gathered around him and his disciples who are also gathered around him, that you have enough witness, even in just the Old Testament, to know the centrality of gospel or of justice to what God is doing. You don't need another book on justice. <laughs> you don't need to go to a seminar or, or a conference on justice. As good as it, I hope the one I'm going to is, right? <laughs> like, you don't need that. The Old Testament alone was enough to see God's heart for justice. And the woe now is to you if you miss it. Now, in all of this, I feel like I've just placed a great millstone on you, a great weight on you. And if I had another 45 minutes, I would remove it. But I do next week. <laughs> this is the life and the teachings of Jesus' family. You cannot miss it. As a church, we fail if we miss it. As individual followers of Jesus, we fail if we miss it. And there is no way that we can say here, even if on, like I don't know all of y'all, and I know it's not like gold-plated everything for you guys. Like I, I know that, but we are the rich. We are the rich. If you can't remember the last time you wondered what I was going to eat, we are the rich. If you never thought, I'm going to have to choose between putting gas in my car and getting to work and having electricity, like if you haven't had to boil water and pour it in a tub to take a, a bath, we are the rich. God's call is for us. Who are we going to be? How are we going to respond? Let's pray.